Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? I'm doing very well today, Jasmine. It's been a very busy week in Kentucky politics. We had this nice show laid out at the beginning of the week where I was going to talk <laughs> about this school choice lawsuit, and you were going to talk about Daniel Cameron at SCOTUS. And, you know, we were going to do COVID update and it was just going to be a regular show. And then the world exploded. Louisville went nuts. There's like several developments in Louisville that we're going to talk about first, including a new candidate for mayor of Louisville. And in just a major blockbuster, John Yarmouth deciding to retire from his seat, opening up one of the biggest prizes in Kentucky politics. So we're going to talk about that for sure. And then we're going to talk about the stuff we said we were going to talk about. But... Before we do that, we are going to do a little bit of housekeeping ahead of time. It is October. It is the month where we are going to focus on a little bit developing our Patreon, developing our supporter network. We did a little bit last week, and we talked about giving away a t-shirt, and we're going to do that. We're going to do a drawing right now, live. Jasmine, in order to qualify for this drawing, what do people have to do? They need to become a supporter on Patreon of $5 or more. That's exactly right. We have right now 22 people who qualify at that level. That's awesome. Three of them were added this week. So congratulations to them. Thank you so much for for coming on, including my uncle, which is great. Uncle Vince, (laughs) thank you very much. Paducah's own. So we're going to be doing this drawing. So Jasmine, are you ready to see who wins? I'm ready. All right, I'm going to hit this button. And it is Lucy Kurtz. So congratulations, Lucy. I love it when I don't know the person, honestly. Uh, that is something that I think is great, that when, when it's somebody who uh, we don't know super well who, who wins the prize, because that means, you know, we are, we're connecting further than, uh, than we ever really thought we would, Jasmine. I mean, I don't know how you feel about it, but uh, that, is, that is kind of a cool thing, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, you, you and I once had a podcast before this. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. In college. And I think we maybe had two or three listeners. And sometimes I wondered if that's how this show would be as well. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we have more than two or three listeners. We do. We have several. We have hundreds and hundreds of listeners, which is great. And we all, we're always trying to grow. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a pretty, it's a, it's a niche, but it's a niche that I think uh, is well served. And I, I'm really glad that we've been able to, to generate the listenership that we have. You know, we had... We had May Suramek on the show a couple of weeks ago. She's the candidate, the Democratic candidate in the 89th. And she talked a little bit about social entrepreneurship. And she talked about, you know, um, I want to be able to do the thing that I like to do, which is make noodles and build community. And I want to be able to, to, to make money doing it. Uh, you know, she's not trying to get rich. She even said when she was like, you know, uh, they were trying to make small business postcards for me. And I was just like, if I was really, really great at running a small business, I'd probably be rich. And I'm not. I'm a social entrepreneur. It's much more important to me to have a social impact. And that's kind of how I feel about the show. You know, I would I would love to focus more on the show. I would love to spend uh, you know you know more of my time doing stuff like this. Uh, you know, we we make a we, we make a little bit of money doing this, not very much at all. And we would like you know I I think it's fair to say we'd like to make some more. So you know, if you're somebody who values the show, if you're somebody who listens to the show, if you're somebody that likes the show, uh, you know, become a supporter. If you're already a supporter at the one or two dollar level, if you want to win a T-shirt like Lucy, you should go ahead and increase your pledge to five dollars a month. It's it's you know what a, a cup of coffee two cups of coffee uh if you if you get milk in it for whatever reason it makes it like six bucks so you know you should you should go ahead and do it so so yeah that's what i have to say jasmine anything else you want to say about that just that we will reach out yeah to lucy we will about reach out to lucy their free t-shirt yes excellent and and one other piece of information about this is that in the next week on i think next Next Wednesday, um, we're not going to have a guest on the show that will be for free, but we're going to do our first of the Border Bonanza interviews, which will be available for Patreon exclusives. Uh, I'll just go ahead and tell you it's with Jeff Smith, who is a former congressperson, U.S. congressperson from the state of Missouri. So I'm really excited to talk to Jeff. I got to know him several years ago. He has a crazy story. He's also been to prison. (laughs) So that's worth mentioning. I mean, he has a a wild story. 
we can talk about that if we want to, but he's also very plugged in there in Missouri, and he knows all of uh, a lot of the players. Uh, a lot of the people that you've heard of from Missouri, he, he's known for a long time. Uh, and he's going to talk to us about, about Missouri and how it compares to Kentucky, and I'm really looking forward to, to that conversation. So become a Patreon supporter, and you can listen right away. But if you're not and you're willing to wait a few months, we may or may not make it available to you. So that's it for this. Uh, all right, let's get to talking about the huge political developments in Louisville. Jasmine, would you like to start with the mayoral or the congressional developments in Louisville? Let's start smaller. Which one is smaller? You go bigger. <laughs> Which one's smaller? Mayoral? Yeah. Okay, okay. I think so. I think it's a matter of perspective, but all right, yeah, we'll go with mayor. Okay, so the Louisville mayor's race got more crowded this week when Carla Deering threw her hat in the ring. She came out with a really slickly produced video, in it, and in it she said, quote, we can't sit on the sidelines and let the powers that be sweep our dreams under the rug. I What a quote. I think that's a good that's a good line. Do you think it's a good line, Jasmine? Yeah, it's yeah, pretty good. It's a good line. All right, so here's some stuff about Carla Deering and the race that she's trying to make. So, so she, in her video, she used the metaphor of a kitchen table, saying that she wants to hear, you know, basically the city as like a kitchen table where we're all sitting around it and we're, we're having a conversation. So she says she wants to hear from a lot of different kinds of voices around the table. So, you know, I think that she's making the point that in the race currently, some voices are being excluded. That's the point that she's trying to make and that she would be the person who would listen to them. So I think that's that's kind of the race that she's trying to run. A little bit of information about her. She seems really well connected in the entrepreneurship space. Uh, she's been connected to JCTC and she served on the board of TARC, which is Louisville's uh, public transit system. During, I think she she said she's going to emphasize workforce development, childcare, and affordable housing. So WFPL, the the radio station here in Louisville, they, they pushed her on the affordable housing piece of the plan, you know, asking her about gentrification and, and making sure that people can stay in their homes. She didn't really have good answers yet. You know, she just started her campaign a couple of days ago. Um, I, I encourage you to check out that article and, and see what they had to say there, you know, if that's something you're really passionate about. I'm sure she'll have some better answers uh, soon, and your mileage may vary regarding how much, you know, not having answers right away matters. Uh, a little bit more about her. She apparently grew up very poor in Michigan. Uh, I saw this Business First article from a while back that said that, you know, she watched her mother cry over jars of peanut butter and jelly that had been broken on the way back from the grocery because that represented a week of lunches for their family. So, you know, growing up uh, poor, eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, uh, that that's uh, part of her story. Uh, Deering worked her way up and ended up working on Wall Street at Morgan Stanley in their consulting department. And she also, uh, you know, after coming to Louisville, she started the, the fintech startup Sum180. Jasmine, are you familiar with the, the term fintech? No. Yeah, it's financial technology. It's big in the entrepreneurship mm. and, uh, you know, kind of startup world. Um, you know, you, ha- yeah. you have like... I work in the public sector. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, once upon a time, I did work for a startup and I learned this word. Uh, th- it's a very hot space. Um, and yeah, financial technology, if you think about it, how much, you know, how much using your credit card has changed in the past 10 to 15 years uh, and all the places you can use it. You know, I, I remember when it was like wild that you could swipe it on like an iPhone or an iPad and people were just like, oh my gosh. And you know, the, with the, the square technology and now like there's a million different kinds of cash registers and different ways that you mm-hmm. can use your, your credit card. Um, and, and then also different ways to do payments, different ways to do um, accounting, tons of different ways that you can do finance. So there has been a lot of innovation in this space. It's some 180 was the name of Carla Deering's firm. Uh, she eventually sold that to FlexWage. I don't know what any of these companies do. Uh, I just learned their names. Uh, as we move along with this race, I will learn more about what they did uh, and, and kind of what her career was. I, I did find out that Someone 80, her original company, was launched at the business incubator that was started by Stephen Riley. Stephen Riley is a big deal here in Louisville. He once ran for the District 8 Metro Council race. He ran, I think, like... One of the large art groups here in town. He's he's a very wealthy person who does a lot of things around town. Um, so so you know she's connected to him in that way. She did make an exit, uh, Jasmine. If I use the term exit in that way, are you familiar with that? Is no okay. Uh, I hate to be using all this jargon from like a, an old world I used to live inside of. So when you found a company and then you sell it to somebody else, that's called an exit. Okay, that's what I thought but yeah i don't want to assume no that's good i i you know and i'm sure a lot of listeners are probably confused by by this type of jargon that's not usually what you come to my old kentucky podcast to hear about um but yes 
founders making exits, uh, you know, when you see a dollar figure attached to an exit, sometimes you're like, oh, the founder just made a ton of money. And sometimes that is true. Sometimes the founders do make a lot of money, but it really depends on how diluted your shares become, how diluted your own ownership is as you're trying to like fundraise, you know, sell part of your company to be able to continue to operate before you're able to sell it. And, And sometimes you just get a small fraction of that. I don't know what Miss Deering's situation was when she made her exit, uh, but she's now running for mayor. So, uh, you know, some clues there. I don't I don't really know what it what the truth is, though. Okay, so prior to some 180, Deering also founded the Community Foundations of America that uh, helped nonprofits kind of develop better marketing and operations. So bigger nonprofits that had these, you know, big donor bases that wanted better like websites and like marketing technology and stuff like that. You know, that is something that a lot of company or foundations and, and bigger donors did struggle with kind of recently. I, I think there has been some innovations in that space as well. So I, you know, she was probably uh, big in that. So, so that's something that she did before that. And uh, currently, Deering owns a company called Velo, which is, quote, a firm specializing in providing expertise on strategy, growth, and access to capital for black, brown, women, and LGBT-owned companies and projects, spurring development in West Louisville, unquote. That's directly from her campaign, but that is what this firm uh, attempts to do. So that's that's a little bit about Carla Deering. Jasmine, you know, we we already have a pretty well-developed field. Uh, you know, Craig Greenberg has been dominant so far, but David Nicholson had a big quarter in the Democratic primary. We have Tim Finley Jr. and we have Shamika Parrish Wright as other big contenders in this race. And now we have Carla Deering. What does this mean to you? I honestly don't know because I feel like I have heard her name before, but I honestly don't know where from because obviously... As you can tell, I'm not familiar with like the entrepreneurship (laughs) world or the landscape in Louisville or anything like that. So I don't know. It sounds like she may be like well connected to some people. So like she may have some money to throw around. Greenberg is just so far ahead in that respect. Well, he's I I don't know. He's raised like eight hundred thousand dollars. That's a lot of money for this race in the past, but but I don't think it's an insurmountable amount of money. And when I when I've like talked to people who, you know, have been thinking about running in this race uh the people who are well connected to money are not intimidated by that amount of money it's just a lot more than everybody else so far and i wonder if carla deering is one of those people i mean she's connected to to money she's connected to the entrepreneurship community which doesn't just include founders like herself it includes the people who fund those uh those companies and those people have a lot of money Uh, that that may be a gap that she's able to close i don't i don't know um, Jasmine, this campaign just started a couple of days ago, so we're certainly learning about it. But this is the type of campaign I thought there was space for. It does seem to me like she's running to the left of Craig Greenberg. I mean, hearing the information I just spouted off to you, do you, do you agree with that assessment? It at least sounds like it. I guess I just based that on like talking about like bringing different voices to the table that she said in her ad and then like having a firm that's trying to help like black brown women lgbtq like business owners like in west louisville Mm -hmm. that maybe sounds more progressive but like honestly outside of those two things i i don't really know about her like politics or policies or where she's gonna fall but it would seem that way yeah i mean the entrepreneurship stuff does kind of like strike an odd chord with with campaign so far which i i mean I think just the perception of entrepreneurship and the perception of like founding a company has really shifted in like the past five or six years when that's no longer a marker of like a cool progressive thing to do like it was during the Obama years. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, she's been at it for a long time. And, and you know, I, I do think as we learn more about her campaign, uh, she may be focusing a lot more about her work on the board of TARC, her her work with JCTC. I, you know, I think she's done some work with the Urban League. Her Twitter uh, includes a lot of like retweets from, you know, like Tim Finley, who's running for mayor, also um, retweets mm-hmm. from, from like Sadiqa Reynolds, who, uh, you know, a, a lot of people who are connected. And Sadiqa Reynolds has endorsed, endorsed. Mm-hmm. Tim Finley. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and that's that's something that I thought was kind of interesting. So, I mean, that's kind of I, I think we're going to see that as what she emphasizes. Um, I don't know what she actually thinks, but I do think she's trying to move 
you know, to a, a left position of than Craig Greenberg and whether or not she, I mean, it is a little bit like Craig Greenberg and like, will people buy it? Are people going to believe her? And, and that's the real mm-hmm. question. Um, and, and that's the challenge she's going to have to meet. She just started yesterday. She's also a name I've heard about from, you know, being uh, in and around the business community in this town. You know, it will be interesting to see, see what she does. But I do think if she's able to, to open up that lane and if she's able to kind of run in that lane, then she she could have uh, you know an interest make this race a little bit more interesting um, than it is now. Um, I, I think she's certainly inserted herself into a, a role that that there's space for in this campaign. But I wonder if she's going to be able to effectively run in it. That that's kind of the next step. And you know she just started a few days ago, so that's yet to be seen. But yeah, that she's got a cool video so far. Uh, yeah. So anything else about the the mayoral developments this week, Jasmine? Nope, I think that covers that one. All right, well, let's move on to what you said was the bigger development. I, I think I probably agree with that, but that is that John Yarmouth is retiring from his seat, which was a bombshell that was dropped on top of everybody on Tuesday afternoon. Uh, I, I don't think there's any other way to say it than, than John Yarmouth is a giant in Louisville politics. John Yarmouth originally won his seat in 2006. He unseated three-term Republican Ann Northup. He then beat her again in 2008, and then really only ever faced token opposition. It was slightly more serious candidate in 2018, but she didn't do any better than any other Republican had uh, in that race. Um, and, you know, Louisville has changed a lot since John Yarmouth took office, but but Yarmouth managed to stay very tightly connected to the community, and he was constantly available to listen to constituents and learn about issues, and, and I think did that in an honest and a really connected way. I've always been really impressed with his work mm-hmm. as a congressperson, both in Louisville and in Washington, D.C., really just a paragon of what, what you know, I hoped for when, uh, you know, he was one of the first campaigns that I worked on back in 2006. Uh, you know, as John Yarmouth is retiring, Jasmine, do you have any thoughts just about him before we start, start talking about the, the, the repercussions that happened after that? Yeah, I agree with everything you said. He he's just like a really accessible representative. I think, you know, he's talked to us twice. He met us at our studio and we couldn't use our normal recording space. And we had to record like upstairs on a really hot day with no AC. Like, (laughs) like, and I always felt like, like when we've interviewed him, that he's also been like very honest. It didn't, it didn't feel like these planned answers that he gives to everyone. I always enjoyed talking to him yeah i I think that's true of the show and and i think just generally like you know i've seen him in democratic events around town i've seen him at public events just like issue-based events where he's shown up Mm -hmm. he's always been very personable uh you know there's a little bit of drama about me and his campaign in 2006 which you can google if you'd like to but he was always very kind to me after that he wrote me a letter of recommendation (laughs) to get into grad school and i have to tell you jasmine you know this announcement kind of hit me like a ton of bricks and Mm-hmm. I mean, my mind immediately jumped to like, well, what's next? And started my mind yeah. started racing. But I will tell you, like, once I had a, a few minutes of of kind of just sitting with the news, I was a little bit emotional. Like, he's an important person in my life. He's an important person, uh, you know, in in kind of how I've considered things politically. Like for a long time, I, I mean, I'll, I I think I I said this a little bit after it happened, but you know, in the same way that I think like. Barack Obama or Bernie Sanders stood as like an inspiration for people to get involved in politics in the first place. You know, for me, John Yarmouth was was very much like that person, you know, coming out of, uh, you know, a city that elected a a conservative Republican for several terms, which I did not think fit fit like the the nature of our city. You know, kind of the way that the the sixth district has been run recently, where they ran a lot of different kind of like moderate to like you know conservative candidates in in the the race to try to like out moderate the Republican. John Yarmouth appeared in this primary as this like unabashed liberal running against mm-hmm. the Iraq War, running you know in favor of of a lot of the social programs that I supported as a Democrat, and really not shying away from the person that he was. You know, he he probably displayed his like F pin from the NRA uh, consistently through his uh his time in 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 congress and and he won that primary against you know a a military guy 
um, who, who really emphasized his, his record um, there and, and then went on to win that general election as an unabashed liberal. And, and yet that was very inspiring to me. Uh, it portended a lot of changes to come. A lot of the things that happened in Louisville after that, which made us a much more progressive city, you know, he laid the groundwork for it. Uh, and, and, you know, I will I will really miss him. Um, and, and I really think he has really big shoes to fill. So that's enough about about Congressman Yarmouth. But what happens next? You know, in the wake of this, Attica Scott has already uh, filed to run and was running in a primary against him before he decided to retire. And then minutes after John Yarmouth uh, announced his intention to retire, Morgan McGarvey was in the race. I mean, it was like five minutes. Uh, Morgan McGarvey, of course, Attica Scott is is a state representative from the 41st district and a district that stretches from west to east Louisville. And Morgan McGarvey is a state senator, the leader of uh, the, the Democratic caucus in the Senate. His district includes the Highlands, Oklahoma, a lot of the area around there. And we actually just spoke to him kind of recently about his, his TikTok yeah. account. So, uh, you know, Jasmine, first of all, what did you think? about McGarvey's announcement, like immediate announcement to, to run in, in the primary? Well, first of all, I asked you, Robert, right after the Yarmouth announcement, I was like, did you know about this? Because I just assumed that you must have, that like people were talking about this, but like it really like shocked me. Yeah, I, I was shocked it, too. I think I think everybody was shocked. Yeah, so I was not expecting it and... While I always suspected that Morgan McGarvey wanted Yarmouth's seat, I I think I was so taken aback by like the retirement news, and then he announced. I was like, "Whoa! I haven't even like processed this first thing yet." I guess I'm definitely not surprised by it all. I'm sure that he did that for I don't know like m- money raising purposes, but I don't know. I I've seen a few people like maybe further left kind of upset by it or think like the optics of it don't look good because Attica Scott was already in the race. Um, I don't know if announcing so quickly helps or hurts him in any way. It's probably just like a net neutral, I guess. Um, but I'm definitely not surprised that he's running. I, yeah. I, the thing that really surprised me was very, how clearly prepared he was to do this whenever it happened it could have been oh yeah yeah i I really i really realized that today whenever this long list of endorsements came out right absolutely yeah and and those endorsements include people like joni jenkins reggie thomas uh, who else is on that list jim uh jerry abramson Abramson, jim wayne like a lot of big big people in louisville politics endorse morgan mcgarvey for the seat and 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 that's kind of the thing to me is this announcement could have easily happened two years ago. It could have very easily happened four years from now. And I think Morgan McGarvey (laughs) was just ready to go the moment that John Yarmouth announced his retirement. And I think that's going to set him apart from the field as it develops. Um, He did, you know, mention raising $160,000 in day one, which is a a pretty good chunk of money. That's something that people are going to raise their eyebrows at. You know, I, I think... Morgan clearly was deferential to John Yarmouth and and Attica Scott wasn't. And that's why she got into the race. But I've said this. I said this about Attica Scott when she ran against John Yarmouth. Anybody's allowed to run for whatever race they want to run in. And it's up Mm -hmm. to the voters to decide who they want to, to serve in that office. And so when she primaried John Yarmouth, I was like, that is her prerogative. Morgan McGarvey's prerogative is to run against Attica Scott. And he has just as much right to do that as she does. And, 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 you know, very clearly he wants the, <laughs> the seat and has done a lot of work already to, to try to earn it. And, you know, that that's kind of where I feel about that. You know, you know, very clearly he's a different person uh, than Attica Scott and has a different political vision and has uh, I don't know how much different, honestly, in terms of actual policies that they support. But he certainly represents a different demographic. I think there are a lot of other people who this seat is their dream. Um, serving in elected office in Kentucky as a Democrat is is tough. 
Uh, we've, we've had a lot of conversations through the years, Jasmine, with a lot of different people who represent different parts of Kentucky and Frankfurt and downtown and, and Metro Louisville who have a tough time because of how conservative Kentucky is. Moving to D.C. as a Democrat, especially if, you know, at some point in that time, Democrats have the majority. That's that's really nice. That's going to be a lot easier. You're going to be actually be influencing policy. You're going to be doing things that matter on a in a big way. Like John Yarmuth brought four billion dollars to Kentucky this year. You're going to have the mm-hmm. opportunity to impact that that spot. So a lot of people who serve in different places in Kentucky, I think, have had their eye on this seat for a very long time. I, I think, though, that Morgan is a lot more prepared than them to do this right now. Um, you know, I think not necessarily that they were caught flat footed, but they thought this would happen in two years or they thought it might happen, you know, uh, four years or something like that. And, and there was more groundwork that could be laid for this race. Um, they I, I will be interested to see if they decide to take on Morgan McGarvey, who clearly has, uh, you know, a very, very quick advantage in this race. Or if they decide to keep their powder dry, uh, what do you think? Are, are there any other people in the Kentucky legislature or the Metro Council who you you think, uh, you know, might run? I don't know about in the legislature or in Metro Council, but I mean, there are already are articles about Aaron Yarmuth, John Yarmuth's son, potentially running for the seat. Yeah. Um, so that's one name I've heard, and I think like you know more than me about people who may be interested in the seat that are surprising to me. So I don't know. One person who I don't know what they want to do or anything like that, but like David Yates has been Metro council president and then he just won a state Senate seat. Younger guy. Like he seems like someone who, who may have like political aspirations, like being in Congress, but he just got to the state Senate. And so I don't know, someone like him, I guess, like might be one of those people who maybe isn't prepared for it now. And then another name that like, I, I don't know anything about what he wants to do either, but Bill Hollander um, is not running for his Metro council seat. Again, he was Metro councilman for like the Clifton area where I used to live. Um, And he was though a white man, one of the most progressive members of Metro Council. Right. Um, so I don't know if like, I don't know if either of those people are interested in those are names that I think of, but I think like, you know, of some others. <laughs> I don't know if I know about some others. Um, uh, it's been reported in the newspaper that, that Josie Raymond is thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, I think it follows in the same kind of vein. Like I was just saying, like, you know, sir, she she clearly has a passion for universal pre-K. She's been on our show several times talking about universal pre-K. She started Get Up, the uh, you know the movement to get universal pre-K in Louisville. That's going to be a tough lift, no matter what. Uh, and, and impacting universal pre-K in Frankfurt or in Louisville is just a really hard hard thing to do. If you get to Washington, the big debate right now is about whether or not to include, you know, child care including pre-K, in that big reconciliation bill uh, that will be like $3.5 trillion. You know, she would have a place in that debate. That's the debate she wants to be having. Uh, And and I think that, you know, she has much, much more ability to impact the ability of Louisville's kids to get pre-K in Washington, D.C. than she would in Frankfurt or than she would in Louisville. And and I so I think that that's I wouldn't be surprised if she threw her name in the ring. Um, at all, at all. Uh, and, and another name of somebody who I think is ambitious, who's been on the show before, who, you know, clearly is looking to do more things is, is Mackenzie Cantrell. She, uh, yeah, I was thinking that one as well. A state rep from, from South Louisville just took on the job as vice chair of the party. Very clearly, um, you know, she, her, her kind of passion is, is labor and employment stuff. Same sort of deal. Um, labor and employment stuff in, in Kentucky has gotten worse since she got to Frankfurt. Not her fault, uh, but, but she you know strongly supports labor rights uh, and, and the right of people to form unions. 
you have much more ability to impact that as a member of the federal legislature in Congress than you do when you have uh, are in such a Republican state with a Republican legislature here in Kentucky. If she is passionate about these issues and wants to make a difference, that's the place where she's going to be able to do it. And and so that's the thing. Everybody has a story a little bit like that in Louisville. Mm-hmm. You're struggling. You're banging your head against the wall to make the smallest amount of progress possible in Frankfurt or downtown. And, and, and you know, you may be able to get an ordinance passed here in Louisville. But it's, it can be nullified by the state government and has been many times before. So, you know, it's just, just tough here in Kentucky unless you move upstairs, get the job in D.C., and, and then you're really able to make a difference there. So really anybody. I mean, David Yates, uh, there's several people in uh, in the, you know, in, in Metro Council. A name I've heard bandied about a few times is Keisha Dorsey. Um, mm-hmm. You know, th- th- that's a name I-, I think might of somebody who might be interested in-, in running for that that seat. I don't know her very well, um, but but it's just a name that I've heard. Um, yeah. And, and really, anybody who has shown any amount of ambition in Louisville, <laughs> consider them as a possibility to run for this race. Now, Morgan, <laughs> yeah. Morgan got a big, big, big head start and has endorsements and has a lot. I mean, a lot of endorsements and a lot of money already. So good for him. But just like we talked about in the mayor's race, those are gaps that can be made up. Uh, and, and so I wonder what everybody's thinking about this, because, you know, if if they let Morgan McGarvey have the seat, then <laughs> he may be there for a long time. Yeah. At the same time, that's what I said a couple years ago when Brandon Cohn won the District 8 seat when he was about Morgan McGarvey's age. Tom Owen had served in that seat for like 30-something years, and I was like, well, I guess that's wrapped up for my whole life, and he left after one term. You know, maybe Morgan McGarvey gets to D.C. and decides he doesn't like it. You know, he's got young kids. Maybe it's not working out for him. Maybe he's not able to have as much impact as he thought he would be able to. Maybe he just doesn't like it, doesn't get along with the people there, wants to come back to Louisville. I don't know. There's no way to know how long he will serve. So, you know, it's it's tough to say. Lots of decisions that need to get made. We will see how it goes. All right, Jasmine, we've been talking a long time about uh, things that weren't on our list of things to talk about uh, earlier this week. So, Jasmine, let's get to the stuff that we already said we were going to talk about. Uh, why don't you tell us about the, uh, the Attorney General going to the Supreme Court? All right. So, the Attorney General's office argued before... The Supreme Court of the United States yesterday. Um, to be clear, Daniel Cameron is not the person who argued before the court, though it might be easy to think that if you saw anything about this in the news. <laughs> yes. I suppose. Um, so the case has to do with sort of House Bill 454. This was a bill that passed the General Assembly in 2018, and it was like a ban on um, a standard DNA like abortion procedure. Yeah. So the EMW clinic, the lone abortion provider in Kentucky, sued to block the bill, and they won at the U.S. District Court, and they won at the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. They argued that the law was unconstitutional because it effectively bans the most common abortion procedure in the second trimester, and that poses an undue burden on the right to an abortion prior to viability. Do you mind if um, I jump in right here and just say, too, that this is the type of abortion that has to happen if there's a fetal anomaly? Usually those mm-hmm. get detected at the 20-week ultrasound. When this happened to us, you know, we had to have a d abortion because... Um, you know, that's when we recognize the anomaly. So a, a blanket ban on something like this makes, you know, abortions due to fetal anomaly or incompatibility with life impossible. So it to me is like one of the most cruel type of bills that you can pass about abortion. Right. And so the district court and the Sixth Circuit held that that bill was unconstitutional. Andy Bashir's attorney general administration did not appeal the decision to the Supreme Court But Daniel Cameron petitioned the Supreme Court asking to intervene in the case to defend the law. The Supreme Court granted the petition and the AG's office filed a brief back in the summer. We talked about the story a little bit then. And then the oral arguments were what happened this week. Um, But this is not a case about the constitutionality of the law. I think that's what's important here. The limited question in this case is whether Daniel Cameron should be allowed to intervene in the lawsuit. And I I think that this case has really been talked about by both like 
Daniel Cameron's office and the ACLU that, you know, we're in this fight about abortion rights. And, and while that's true, that's not what this oral argument this week was about. House Bill 54, 454, like, that was not the focus of the arguments at all. This is, like, purely a civil procedure kind of issue. Yeah, which I think is kind of funny. I mean, I, I think I saw a ton of stuff from Daniel Cameron about, like, fighting against abortion. And it, like you mentioned, it's just a procedural issue. It's just very clear that this is an issue he thinks will gin up his base and will get him a lot of attention. And he's not wrong. Um, but mm-hmm. he's not he's not exactly arguing at the Supreme Court about abortion. He's having somebody from his office agree, uh, argue that he should be added to an abortion case. Yes, a case that's already like been ruled on. Right. Also, so the you know this is coming in after the, there's an opinion in the case already, um, and so Matthew Kuhn, who is Daniel Cameron's deputy solicitor general, is who actually argued the case before the Supreme Court. The standard of review is abuse of discretion, which is a really deferential standard to the court below. So, you know, they're not like looking at this case anew. They have the Supreme Court would have to find that something that the court below did was clearly unreasonable. The primary questioner, I would definitely say, was Justice Sotomayor. And she pointed out that the prior attorney general signed a stipulation at the in the case, agreeing to be dismissed from the lawsuit and bound by any final judgment. So that was an order that was like signed by the AG in the case. Um, And she asked why it would be unreasonable for the attorney general to continue to be bound by the final judgment, just as they had signed in the stipulation. And she also pointed out that the AG's office never filed a timely notice of appeal. And so, of course, this was Andy Bashir's attorney general administration that signed the stipulation and asked to be dismissed from the lawsuit. But, you know, th- the attorney general, like, is the same legal entity. Um, it's, an, it's an office. It's not a person. Right, exactly. And so Kagan, you know, brought that up. You know, she said a lot... There's a lot of law saying that even though the attorney general, the person has changed, and even the party has changed, it's still the same legal entity. But she did go on to acknowledge that it would be a really harsh jurisdictional rule if that left no one to defend a state law, which is what the attorney general's office is arguing, that Kentucky law allows the attorney general to defend its laws and... Because of these procedural rules, we're unable to do that. But the attorney general needs the ability to do that. Um, but, I mean, this isn't just about this abortion bill. This would be a huge procedural ruling. If the attorney general did not file a timely notice of appeal, and our procedural rules are really, really strict about things like that. If, if you don't file your notice of appeal on time, you're probably not getting that appeal. You know, we have these procedural rules that are strict and everyone has to follow them. And so if every time a new attorney general come came in and could intervene in a lawsuit that's already over, you know, like what's the limit on that? How late do they need to come into the case? When can they file something in a case that's already been final yeah if the shoe is on the other foot you know if if kentucky you know elected seven straight republican attorney generals and then um you know elected a democrat in like 2070 and then wanted to appeal you know the fact that daniel cameron didn't intervene in like the right to work case or something like that like that would open that up like this thing that happened like 40 years ago can you appeal it now just because it's the first time a democrat has held that office um I mean, that's kind of what we're talking about here, right? Yeah, and, it, you know, it could, it could be about anything, and it could apply if other states have, other state attorney generals have similar powers as our attorney general, and I, I don't know, like, other state laws, but this is going to apply to them as well. And so I think that the ruling in this case could, could be a pretty big deal, I guess. Justice Thomas even asked 
a question in this case, and he doesn't ask questions very often. Um, he asks the AG's office, you know, what what is the court's authority for allowing the attorney general to intervene at this point? You know, like they didn't find a file a timely notice of appeal. Um, the federal rules of civil procedure. There's a, a rule about intervention. It's Rule 24 that applies to trial courts, but this is the appellate court. So, what what authority do they have to allow him to intervene at this point? Um, so, there were a lot of questions, good questions for the attorney general's office. But I did read SCOTUS blog, which is a blog that talks about like every case that SCOTUS is hearing, all the details of it, um, and their analysis. They felt like. Daniel Cameron may win. <laughs> Interesting. It seemed to me like this could be one of the, I mean, well, first of all, the, the conservative justices just have an overwhelming majority. Like I have a 63. Right. So it's yeah. like, uh, I will just write a blog that just says conservatives po- poised to win at Supreme Court about every case. And I'll probably be right, like almost every time. But it could be like an interesting, like 5-4 decision or 6-3 decision or something um, that is, includes like an interesting combination of justices because you know you didn't talk about it but your notes have here that like justice Breyer seemed a little bit more yeah on on uh yeah on on daniel cameron's side and justice thomas seemed a little bit more skeptical of brian uh, of uh cameron's position so it could be like you know the three lib or like two liberals uh not Breyer, but also thomas and then like maybe alito because alito and thomas always vote together and it's like five four (laughs) like with Justice Breyer on the other side, right? So it could be, like, one of those weird combinations of, of people. Like you said, Justice Breyer, like, seemed a little bit sympathetic to that position. He said, but if Kentucky law allows Cameron to defend the law and there's no harm to anyone else, and I can't see where there is, why can't he just come in and defend the law? And I I think that the response to that from the ACLU and kind of the response it seemed from Sotomayor's line of questioning is, well, like what, what is a final judgment then if it, if they can just come in after there's been an opinion in the case? Yeah. Um, and so like, you know, what's the limit on that? What if, um, what if Jasmine, Daniel Cameron wins this case appeals and they just like deny cert. Wouldn't that be funny? Yeah, <laughs> that would be funny. I guess. I think so. They're just like, yeah, you can appeal. And then he appeals and they're like, we're not going to listen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they might. I think he'd be more likely to win that than yeah, this. I totally agree with that. <laughs> I totally agree. With that. But but yeah. the, the other the, the reason he might get denied is because there might already be a case working its way through about this specific thing, like from Mississippi or Arkansas or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyways, uh, anything else about this court case, Jasmine? Um. I also wanted to note that Alexa Colby Molinas argued for the ACLU, um, and she I thought she did a good job. I, I thought that Matthew Kuhn did a good job as well. Like even though I disagree with their position, I think that he did a a good job like responding to the, their questions. Um, but the ACLU is basically arguing the attorney general agreed to be bound by a final judgment. They chose not to appeal it. The appellate deadline's over. And so, like, intervention just can't be a revolving door of gaining re-entry into lawsuits. Um, which, that's the position that I agree with. And this t- isn't, I don't think, to me, this is even about, like, the politics of it. Just, it's a procedural thing. <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. it. It's kind of thinking about, you know, one side is arguing that the office matters and, like, we have to have an end because what is life if it doesn't have an like if things have to come to an end at some point and the other one the other side seems to be arguing yeah but what does it hurt to have everybody like to just never have it in like who what's the problem here um and yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting kind of yeah it, it yeah. isn't actually an abortion lawsuit it's a procedure lawsuit and i think it is an interesting question um you're an appeals lawyer so i always defer to you on these kinds of things so i agree with what you have yeah to say. well and i mean i i do feel i do think there needs to be like more access to justice generally and we do have like some really harsh procedural rules that keep people from getting that especially like on the criminal side like the ability to like 
reverse cases for actual innocence and, and things like that. Um, but I think that this is something a little bit different. Yeah, this is a civil lawsuit that a, an attorney general is trying to come on to because he is of the party. Um, he's of the party that the legislature is the majority in and wants to appeal a, a law that the legislature passed. And he wasn't yeah. in this. Yeah. And that, that, that is. And there has to be like an end to that. Yeah. At some point. Because if you don't have an end to that, like every time the office switches, you're just going to have a million of these things that. Yeah. That add. Yeah. And that just. Exactly. That could present a, a big problem. I, yeah. Yes. So I see what you're saying, Jasmine. I see what you're saying. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, all right. Yeah. An interesting question. But I think at the end of the day, the thing that I'm laughing at is this is not an abortion lawsuit. And Daniel Cameron keeps tweeting, you know, I'm protecting the rights of the unborn. Uh, and he's not. He's not. He's he's answering a procedural question. An interesting one. And actually, you know, maybe you should campaign on that. I'm getting clear answers to questionable procedural issues at the <laughs> Supreme Court. Like, I think that that is the, the message he should run on in 2023. All right. Uh, I have a different lawsuit to talk about, and it is the school choice lawsuit in Franklin Circuit Court. So we're coming back to Kentucky. We're leaving the Supreme Court building in D.C. We're coming back to, to Frankfurt. Uh, and, and yeah, a few weeks ago, we talked about this already. Um, it, was, it was a lawsuit that was brought by the Council for Better Education attempting to stop the voucher bill that got passed in early 2021 during the regular General Assembly. In Franklin Circuit Court, Judge Philip Shepard ruled that the educational opportunity accounts that were allowed for in this law were, in fact, unconstitutional. So I will do an extremely quick reminder about what this plan was. Private donors could give money to scholarship accounts for kids, and those donations would then be tax deductible. Only students who were part of households at 175% of the poverty line or below would qualify for these accounts. And also, they had to be students in bigger counties. If you want more information about the bill, there's tons from when the bill is actually under debate from back in the General Assembly earlier in this year. But on September 22nd, our show on that date, we had more details catching everybody up on the law where we kind of went over the arguments. So go back and listen to that if you're interested. So the axis on which this case tilted was the idea of whether a private donor giving money and then receiving a tax benefit counts as the government spending money. And I can tell you that in public policy research, the people who like study how what the government actually spends money on and how that impacts people's lives, this whole process is actually called tax expenditures. So, uh, you know, the people who research this stuff certainly consider this process the same as the government, like directly taxing this money and then spending it themselves, them opening up a a loophole in the law so that you can give money to something else and then deduct it from your overall taxes is basically the government spending money in the in the, uh, you know, opinion of people who research this for their career. And and Judge Shepard agreed with the plaintiffs and the public policy experts. This is a quote from the, the suit. Quote, there is nothing private or charitable about the funding of the account granting organizations. And this funding mechanism is not a donation in any meaningful sense of that word that connotes a voluntary contribution of personal or business in- income, unquote. Yeah, basically just saying that like, it's not a donation because you're just getting the money back when you... Uh, you know, deduct it from your taxes. You're not donating Mm it. It's not money that you aren't going to, that you were going to get, but you instead gave it to somebody else. Another telling quote from the the opinion, these taxpayers are not donating their own money to account granting organizations. They are taking the money they owe to the state in income taxes and redirecting it to the account granting organizations as authorized by this legislation. So just, you know, basically making that argument again. Shepard also called the 90,000 population floor for counties who could simply use the or who could use the program arbitrary and said that this was unconstitutional as well. So a quote from from that part of the lawsuit, quote, there is simply no rational basis to exclude counties like Franklin County, Nelson County, and many others with a strong existing base of private schools from tuition assistance programs. If the legislature had wanted to limit tuition assistance to counties with existing accredited private schools, it would have been simple to do so. Instead, the legislature chose an arbitrary and discriminatory geographical classification tied to population, not existing private school options that excludes most counties and families from the most lucrative benefit of the legislation, unquote. So yeah, that, that kind of, I guess one of the arguments that the, the, uh, the, fans of vouchers said was like oh well these bigger counties are the ones that actually have private schools and he's saying well so do some small counties and you excluded them for based on population yeah i definitely saw an issue with the population part of it for sure 
Yeah. I, I mean, I, I saw a problem throughout the whole thing. I kind of come from public policy research and I'm like, yes, that's how we think about tax expenditures. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the, the population floor was like, I mean, opened up just a very, very direct problem with the, the law with the law itself so anyways that was judge shepherd's ruling there, there was really very little surprise in the statements that came out afterwards the plaintiffs were really celebratory and, and those arguing for the defendants pledged to appeal and it's very clear that it's only a matter of time before this issue ends up be- be- before the supreme court of kentucky so one other thing I just wanted to make clear as we're talking about this ruling before it goes to the Supreme Court, I, I pulled every single one of these quotes from media accounts. I have not actually read the whole opinion. I can't use Courtnet as well as some people. So I should have just talked to you, Jasmine. You should get. Yeah, I could have looked for it for you. It, sometimes they're not on there, though. So I think it may that, not yeah. have been. I, I, I kind of felt, felt like an idiot. I was like searching everything that I could think of and nothing was coming up. And so, yeah, I probably should have just asked you, but but I didn't. Uh, yeah, there will, you know, the show notes in the newsletter will definitely have the media reports that I pulled these from. I encourage you to go over and, and read those. So anyways, that's what's going on there. We are already at 53 minutes, but I did want to do a quick COVID update. So Jasmine, COVID-19 metrics continue to get better across Kentucky. So we're down to about 2,000 cases per day in the seven-day average, and we're down to about 2,300 in the 14-day average, which is about half of the peak of where we were at uh, at the very top. So so that's good. I mean, we're, we're coming down quite quite a bit. I think today we had about 2,300. Wednesday is usually one of the bigger days. So that that's that's good. We're, we're on the way down. 19 counties have exited the red zone, which is, you know, 25 cases per 100,000 population with lots and lots of counties in the 30 to 35 cases per 100,000 population range. I said last week that more counties would be leaving the red zone soon. I think actually last week there were 20. There's 19 this week. Um, I, I think next week, because there's just so many in that 30 to 35 range that we'll see a much more orange map in, in the next week. Um, In terms of our urban areas, Louisville saw 2,600 COVID-19 cases last week, which was the same as two weeks ago. I think that means that we basically had three weeks of pretty steady case amounts in Louisville, you know, looking at the uh, there was that weird data hiccup that happened last week that i talked about and I'm, I'm not really sure if anything ever got clarified there but i definitely think it was wrong anyways looking at the state's incidence map it does appear that louisville has been decreasing over the past several days i think we're louisville jefferson county is down at about 30 cases per 100,000, which is much lower than it had been so yeah it's really hard to know what's going on in louisville because of that data issue but we're just going to continue to track it Jasmine, I've decided I've complained about the Fayette County Health Department's little image graphs enough. And I went out to the New York Times and pulled their their data myself. Um, you know, the, the New York Times' data is always slightly different from official sources. I don't know why. I can't explain it. Um, I don't like to use it for that reason. But, you know, the Fayette County Health Department left me no other choice. Um, Fayette County is down to a seven-day average of 104 cases per day, which is great. Their recent high and the worst part of the Delta surge was 291. That was just September 13th, one month ago today. That's a huge downturn. You know, that's like a third of where they were at the at the peak. So it's a big, big, big decrease there in Fayette County. So good for them. Hospitalizations continue a steady downward trend. Kentucky now reports an average of 1,542 daily hospitalizations, down from an all-time high of 2,617, and that was in mid-September. Our current number of hospitalizations is now below the high set in the winter. So that was one of the things that was very, very slow to get back to where it was even the worst uh, of the wintertime. Our winter high was 1,856. That was the worst it was before the variants, and we are now below that at 1,542. So, you know, still very high, but definitely going in the right direction. Deaths. Deaths seem to have plateaued. The 14-day average has been steady for at about 40 deaths per day since the end of September, uh, which means that we've been at this level for about two weeks. So, you know, let's hope that we see a downturn in this metric. The deaths really kind of bounce all over the place. The seven-day average is up and then down and then up and then down. But the 14-day average, because it draws from a longer period of time, it's a little steadier. And that has been very, like, steady at about 40 deaths per day. Uh, And I really hope that we see a downturn soon. Louisville only recorded six deaths deaths last week, and that's further evidence that a higher vaccination rate equates to less death during the Delta surge. And I actually, Jasmine, as I promised, I did a little work around that. I tweeted a graph, um, but as of October 12th, 
If you live in a county where fewer than 60% of people have at least one vaccine shot, you are 80% more likely to die from COVID than if you live in a county with more more than 60% of vaccination rate. That that's a wow. big big That's difference. crazy. Yeah. So, you know, the, the high vaccine high vaccination rate really really has impacted death. So, you know, during this surge, it's been very deadly. Our death amount has been worse than it was during the worst of the winter time and it hasn't been that way in the counties with high vaccination rates. So, tell your neighbors get vaccinated. All right. Vaccinations <laughs> continue to slide. <laughs> Bad follow up to that point. So we are down to about 3,500 daily vaccinations of new people. We were at that high of about 7,500 that we maintained for several weeks during the peak of the Delta surge. Why we're down so low, I don't know. My guess would probably be a combination of less dramatic news regarding COVID where we were just like having to call in the National Guard to, to staff hospitals, you know, and, and just so many people getting sick and so many people going to the hospital and dying. You know, people were scared, I think, and got the vaccine because of that reason back then. And, and another big factor is, you know, as more and more people get vaccinated, the people left to get vaccinated are by nature more hesitant to get vaccinated. So it's harder to get those people at the end of the distribution. So I think it's a combination of those two things that are leading to our decline in, in vaccination. Uh, the fact of the matter is that 61.7% of Kentuckians have at least uh, received at least one shot of vaccine and 53.5% have received a full series of the vaccine. So we're at about 53%. You know, I, I think I said what, like a week and a half to get uh, a, a percentage point. So maybe next week we'll be at at 54%. We'll see. Um, at the end of the day, Jasmine, I think things are getting better, but we have a ways to go but before they're to the point of the early summer when it really seemed like things were about over. But with continued vigilance, I think we'll be there soon. So any, uh, any COVID anecdotes for us this week, Jasmine? How was your booster? I got my booster. It was super easy. I went to CVS and got it. And I still had no side effects. Good, good for you. Good for you. I I did not get a booster, but I got a flu shot. Should do that too. I'm getting my flu shot. They come to my office mm. and give them on Friday. Yeah, I had to go to the pharmacy to pick up a prescription for Kelsey, and I told them, "Can I have a flu shot?" And they said yes. And that's what happened. So th that's important too. Um, you know, I, I've been reading a lot about this. It seems like COVID nineteen is just going to become kind of endemic to the population. And with high vaccination rates, there will always, it'll be like the flu. People will die from this every year, but it will hopefully be a low number. And uh, because of our high vaccination rate, after enough time has passed, you know, not nearly as many people will die from this disease or get it and have to go to the hospital as had to in these past few years. So let's hope for that. That well, you know, hopefully we'll be able to eradicate the disease. That doesn't seem likely anymore, though. Something to hope for. But let's hope that whenever it becomes endemic, it's something that we can manage and continue to live our lives as as we did before. So that's that. I have one quick hit before we get out of here, and that is that Justice John Minton, who has been the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Kentucky, is retiring. Um, I think I said, you know, that's not as newsworthy as some of the other political retirements we saw this week uh, with John Yarmuth, but, you know, maybe as important. Uh, you know, I kind of feel like whoever replaces John Yarmuth in D.C. is going to be a lot like John Yarmuth. You know, they're not going to be substantially different mm -hmm. on most policy issues. Justice John Minton has been, you know, I think a fair, it's fair to call him pretty moderate on, on most issues at the Supreme Court. Um, you, you know, I, I know that you have to like argue there, so you probably don't want to give too many opinions about this. Um, but, you know, we could see him replace, he's in the district that includes Bowling Green. Um, we could see him replace with an arch conservative like we did yeah. in, in Eastern Kentucky's district with Bob Conley winning that seat uh, and, and getting a, that seat getting a lot more conservative. That's something that we're at danger of doing. Um, you know, Western Kentucky really stood up, I think, a couple years ago um, in, in the other Western Kentucky seat. Um, and we'll see what happens in the second district uh, in the Supreme Court, which I guess, uh, I don't know, and that, that might be 2022. So we'll see who, who files to run. I think there's already a candidate in the race. But um, yeah, Court of Appeals Judge Kelly Thompson has already filed to run. And so he actually filed his intent to run before the Minton news was public. And so... Mm. We were all waiting for a couple of days to see like what was going to happen there because I, I couldn't imagine him running against him. So I figured that he he may be stepping down. 
Um, but Kelly Thompson is a really good and fair judge on the court of appeals, but we'll see. I'm, I'm sure that a really conservative personality will yeah. probably join that race as yeah, well. I think you're right. I started following judge Thompson on Twitter. seems like he posts a lot of memes. So yeah, kind of an interesting Twitter account, <laughs> I guess. Hey, we know when you're a judge, you got to keep it light. You know, Judge Shepard has yeah. gotten into a lot of trouble with the things he's followed. You know, maybe if he just posted memes, he wouldn't be in so much trouble. Yeah. All right. That's it. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old Kwa pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that you can subscribe to at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we are doing for as little as a dollar a month. But if you support us at the $5 or more level, you can win a t-shirt in the month of October. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. Or you can find all of these links at linktree.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Demcast network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. And we will see you next week.